The Nowhere Fast podcast is brought to you in part by Sepp's Pizza. In addition to their regular menu, they are currently running a lunch special. Any two individual slices for $12, Tuesday through Friday, 11.30 until 2 p.m. Pick up only. Please visit sepspizza.com to place an order, or for any other information you might need. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the episode, and enjoy the pie. I grew up doing graffiti, so I've been drawn to stickers before, and I've been, like, obsessed with with seeing recurring stickers, but I've never really been, like, drawn to a sticker outside of someone's, like, graffiti alias. And then the stickers that you made, the Stop the Sweeps, are probably the the first sticker that I like noticed reoccurring that wasn't directly tied to graffiti. So I don't uh, really have any questions or anything. I just think it's interesting that of all my years of paying attention to that type of stuff, this one it kind of drew my attention in a different way. So hopefully that's like happening. I mean, not a lot of people kind of grew up understanding graffiti, but I think, like, a lot of people definitely are seeing the stickers and then using that to maybe look into what they mean and learning a bit more. So I think it's, like, a really interesting way to approach the activism. Did When you first did that, like, what... Obviously, you were thinking, like, you want to say something to stand up against all that but did you think that it would actually become something that people noticed and it started to like spread attention of the sweeps or was it just something you like kind of sporadically wanted to do in the moment yeah well I've been um I've been like working around encampments and advocating um, against the sweeps for years and it wasn't until uh, the Oilers run. I, I feel like it might have been when the Oilers were in the playoffs. I can't really remember what was going on. But I have this idea because, like, fuck the Oilers, fuck Vice District. But I feel like there was something else happening. I mean, obviously, like, there were sweeps happening. Sweeps were always happening. But there was something else happening. Um, and I, like, rushed home to make this sticker. I printed only 50 of them because I thought that's, like, all I would need. I'd give them to, like, my friends. But then I, and I think in total I ended up printing about 1,000 stickers i had people just like send me money being like i just want to front the costs of whatever this much will get you and then um people kept asking me like if they could get their hands on them or if i could ship them and i was like absolutely not i don't i'm not i'm not out here trying to organize the distribution yeah stickers at all i, I might i kind of joke about it because i have a lot of stickers since and i've tell my friends i'm like you just have to catch me when you see me you get one i have them on me all the time um and i'll give you stacks and stacks I think Will might have the most. I've probably given him hundreds at this point. Um, he's a lot taller than me, so he can like hit them at like stop signs and etc. Yeah. So I didn't. I didn't expect. I. I think it has been like the largest. Like, oh, sorry. Like one of the more popular things that I've. I've made. Um, Do you know like approximately how many have been printed? Like how many of them are there out there? 
I've printed 1,200. I probably have about 300 on me, maybe more, maybe five, maybe I'm way off, maybe 500. I've also like traveled with them. Like, like I've traveled a lot in the, since May and I've, I've given stacks all over the place. So they, they might not even necessarily be in the city here, but I have a bunch more and I really got to get back out there and start handing them out. But I think at first I was a little bit possessive because I was like, I don't have that many, but then I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to keep, keep printing it. Um, so I think about a thousand, maybe like a thousand to 1500 about. It's, I think a lot of people like constantly underestimate the power of a sticker. Like even even I feel someone who doesn't really like care about not not even about yours, just about any sticker in general. After they see it enough times, they kinda have to give in and they have to at least like wonder what it represents. So I just like to think the more of them out there, the more people that might be learning a bit more about the sweeps like through that like that might be the like catalyst to it all that's pretty cool to think about i don't know if you even like see it that way i just like since i knew we were gonna have this talk i've like romanticized that in my head like all week just thinking about like how i was gonna approach this so it's cool it's really cool yeah i don't think i ever i don't think i ever made them because i feel like nothing i when I like just reflecting on all the art I do in general, I don't think anything is ever like, I'm never attempting to like necessarily bring awareness. It's, for me, it's like never about awareness because I just feel like I can't spend my life like arguing my humanity to people. I can't be out here like in these education campaigns or anything. Um, but when I made the sticker, a lot of it was just like, I really wanted people to like put, just again, like connect the dots between playoffs and the sweeps because the sweeps were super escalated um, during the playoffs. And they were, I think that's even when they rolled out the provincial sheriff, sheriffs, like they had like nine sheriffs, I think they rolled out. I can't remember, but but there was a lot going on around like policing the ICE district at that time. Um, and it was, it's, it's kind of funny because there was a point where Will and I started to notice that they kept getting taken down. I think, I mean, from like, like there's one spot, like there's that damn uh, Tim Hortons drive through in front of McEwen. Oh yeah, yeah. That one. There was um there was this like old Antifa sticker under like that's like that's like stuck on the on this post uh, like in the drive-through. And I just kept like sticking this like stop the sweep sticker over it and someone just kept taking it off and I'm like why the hell are they keeping the fucking Antifa sticker? But as soon as I talk about how you know the Oilers are and Roger's place and Daryl are complicit in the sweeps it's an issue but we have this damn antifa sticker and i just kept putting it up and it still just keeps getting taken down but that was a big thing in the beginning we just kept noticing them getting ripped down from places that didn't make sense and especially when they were like around other stickers they were like other politically charged stickers and i was like what the hell is my stickers it's not that radical that that actually really interesting i wouldn't even thought to to like ease into this but i constantly see like i'll i'll put up a nowhere fast sticker on a spot like you're talking about like with a bunch of other stickers and then i see kind of the opposite happen i'll go by it later and i'll see all the ones that are like 
kind of obviously graffiti related they're removed but the nowhere fast ones always stay because i think they see it as more of like a a company than graffiti even though like it's all sort of the same thing right it's like illegal advertising of something but yeah i i've seen it from the from the opposite but that is something i wouldn't have really thought about i guess they would like strategically be trying to trying to block that message especially maybe in that area right yeah for sure and i think it kind of like what you're talking about with with how the nowhere fast stick is staying around and the graffiti one doesn't again this like monopoly on what is considered legitimate art or what is considered like legitimate you know ways to communicate or advertise or and it's it's it kind of sucks because sometimes people don't know what I mean by stop the sweep. So then it just looks like I'm I have this like oiler sticker and I'm like fighting, I'm really fighting to be like, no, I don't actually care about the oilers. <laughs> I I mean that's funny. I'll I'll admit that actually the first time I, I saw one, I actually had no idea what what the sweep I mean I guess I maybe knew what sweeps were I just didn't put it all together but I did I think I knew enough to know that it it wasn't advertising the others right like I I separated it that way and and could tell it was kind of like a uh political ish statement on the oilers using their logo i i hope most people see it that way right like it it would and i think again that's just to say that a lot of what i do i feel like i've been doing it for my friends i'm like i was like oh my friends are gonna love this i'm like rylan's gonna love this i'm like you know thinking about who's my audience isn't isn't necessarily trying to convince the people who attend oilers games to stop attending oilers games i think it's just in a lot of ways, um, I think I think from my experiences, I, I actually handed them out a lot at work um, in the community space when I was at Bissell. And I think a lot of what was cool about it was it made people feel really seen. So it was like, yeah, my friends thought it was cool, but it also made people feel seen. And I guess there's like a additional layer of people are like asking questions and looking into the sweeps a bit more. So right now, more than ever, I'm seeing the sweeps are super relevant and getting a lot of DMs about my stickers and where they can buy them and i'm like no way i'm not shipping them out <laughs> yeah i think also when i i first started paying more attention to all this i saw your initial post of the of the stickers like being shared around and then when i tra like traced it back to the initial post it was made like over a year ago like i think it was 2022 when the original post was so I again thought that was cool that the sticker kind of maintains like an air of power, whatever. But even now, like two years later, it's like the most relevant right now, but it's relevant to you and like what you were fighting for way before now. Yeah, I think I made them in this past May, actually. So it's, it's not that old, but May 2023, I think still. Still 2023. It was when the Oilers were in the playoffs. Was that last year? I mean, and the year before, I don't know. I just remember they were in the playoffs. <laughs> you know, I want to like commend the stickers for sure, but there are other, I wanted to use that to lead into some other talks. I, uh, Dr. Rochelle, it was awesome. She talked a lot about like what 
the sweeps actually are and she mentioned that they've been around for a while but i didn't actually get to ask her for any any like real history on them so if you don't mind can you like tell tell me and, and the listeners a bit about like how long they've actually been happening for i think a lot of people think it, it's kind of a brand new thing but as far as i can tell it, it's been going on for quite a while yeah so i really haven't been around as long as some of like my mentors and stuff so i, I kind of started this work in like 2018 ish um and even at that point i had people I look to as like mentors who had been in this work for like 10 years, 11 years. Um, and I'm sure they had people that they looked up to as mentors that had been around even longer. Um, but I think back then, I was talking to someone about it recently that like back then it was, it was like 2018, 2019, 2020, around away when times, it was super like, I don't know, like, I, I don't think we had language like the sweeps. I don't, I don't even remember us using language like the sweeps, but um, one of the big things was the cops kept macing people in their tents and like slashing their tents, which would inherently kind of force people to move. I don't know if we were explicitly having conversations around like cops, like picking up stuff and moving, moving people. Um, and what I was also saying recently to, to like some friends of mine was, was, was super like manipulative nowadays was that again, like back, back when I first kind of started with this work, um, there was no language such as like ethical removal of encampments or there's no like encampment policy or like encampment response teams. There's none of that. And now I think what sucks now is just like the city's like caught up and EPS is like caught up on all this jargon and this like language around like uh, reconciliation and ethical displacement. And like they have like cultural liaisons now and there's such like manipulative, like gaslighty language that makes us kind of feel like we're steps closer to finally beating um, the violent practice of encampments. But um, yeah, but back then there was no, it was just kind of like, yep, that's what we do. We have to do it. But and I, I almost feel like I'm irritated more now because there's like this weird kind of like position of like benevolence that's being framed with the city and the cops. And like, I just don't remember that. Maybe it was, I, again, I was like not totally in the thick of it till maybe 2020, but I just, I feel so much more frustrated right now than I might have back then, just because right now there's like, I don't know, it's just like this gaslighty, manipulative language that the city projects and the cops project that they didn't have back then. They have all the words for, um, you know, like they're a little more versed in like what they should be saying around indigenous issues and treaty, um, et cetera, and the resources and they kind of scapegoat agencies in a way that they might not have in the past, but I could be wrong. I really don't know the full history of encampments. I know that there were like facilitated like like encampments in like 2007 or eight or something. Um, there's people that might know more about that, but but yeah. So like were you, you were personally involved in the one by the baseball diamond, like the one in 2020? Yeah, that was my, I would, I would argue that it was myself and a handful of other folk who kind of bottom lined that whole operation. And again, to emphasize, it was like very much young people who came together with some like other, maybe older leadership 
not leadership necessarily, but um, it, it was just like a response to an issue that we were experiencing working in the front lines of encampments, seeing that people didn't have the safety of visibility, um, that the cops are just being super malicious, which they've always been. But the problem is like <clears throat> a lot of these agencies, they can't really, back then especially, now I'm seeing agencies that have a little bit more of a backbone, but back then agencies especially could not speak poorly of how cops handled encampments, um, that it, it, it had to come from like anonymous, I guess not really anonymous, but it had to come from people that weren't explicitly attached to, uh, to agencies. Yeah. What do you know why that was? Like why they had to tiptoe around it a bit more back then? Yeah, I think, well, I, I think it's still a case now, but again, it's a little more obvious right now during the encampment sweeps, how just violent it is. But I think a couple of people have talked about this, how we're kind of like held like economically hostage um, by the province, by the feds. Um, we like, we know that the EPS of the city and the province favor certain agencies. And a lot of that is about obedience. A lot of that is about um, being as unproblematic to law enforcement as you can be. I know that during Pekawaywin, particular, like there were certain agencies that were explicitly advising their staff not to volunteer, not to attend, not to, not to engage. Yeah. Cause people are scared. These agencies are scared. They're scared to lose funding. They're scared to lose credibility. I didn't. I didn't realize that. Actually, does the like funding for certain organizations come from like the same sort of people that might be in control of like the ice district and all that going on? Like, is there a direct correlation why people would have to? I'm not really sure, but what I was thinking in particular was like, right now, like we have Danielle Smith like sharing photos of all the weapons that EPS pulled out of encampments or whatever. And when you have the premier of Alberta outwardly like siding with the police on this issue of encampments, um, it's also like very obvious that the province is what's going to like fund a lot of these programs. And it's no coincidence that it's like um, that the agencies that are a little more like harm reduction focused and like maybe a little more radical in that way aren't necessarily going to be funded the same way that it's a lot of times like the faith-based absence-based programming that gets funded a bit better I don't you know I I don't really follow a lot of that these days anymore I know back because I I'm, I'm kind of just I'm a little bit disconnected from that world of the nonprofit at this point I feel pretty hopeless about it all I'm kind of like not and again that that's kind of what, what Pegway was though right it was like a we can't wait for the city or the province to fix these problems. And there is a very obvious service gap that needs to be addressed. Um, Cause obviously the city's not doing it. Obviously the province isn't doing it. And it doesn't make sense to like wait around while people are like dying. Did they, they like, did that camp exist uninhibited like for a little bit like did they they allow it for a time and then shut it down or were they really opposed to it like from the very beginning they were opposed to it opposed to it from the beginning but i just don't think so one of the things that was really important was getting a teepee because and even to this day and i say this all the time to people who want to engage in direct action here in the prairies is that like 
the cops like don't know what to do when you start using language like ceremony and culture and um especially in this age of like reconciliation like reconciliation or whatever there's like kind of a hesitancy to do anything when there's like so our our thought process around the teepee getting erected was like there's no way the cops are going to come and like rip down this teepee um and that's still how I feel today. It's possible that they could do it. But for me, I'm like the photo op of a cop coming into like an unhoused encampment and like taking down a teepee is like gold. That is like, that would be gold to me. Um, but we just didn't think it would happen. So as soon as the teepee was erected, it was just kind of, I, I know I felt super safe in that way. Cause the, you know, it, yeah, like it was just I I don't think at the beginning they obviously didn't love like they didn't love it. They worked with us a bit. I think like the city actually paid for the porta potties because I was just like, you know, it's a municipal responsibility of sanitation. We like the only bathroom in like a kilometer radius that's public. Um, maybe even larger of a radius. So yeah, like the city didn't love it, but I don't think that was a concern because again, it's like people were camping anyways. It wasn't like anything that was happening there wasn't already happening. I think it was just like an eyesore for the city, but that's exactly why it was where it was. Cause it was kind of like, look, this is exactly what it looks like. And we can't hide, we can't shove people into the bush. And so I think that degree of like high visibility scared the shit out of the city. And I think they're still scared shitless about the idea of there being this like large encampment. And that's why with this Roland camp just this past week, I think they were terrified of that becoming like, again, it's embarrassing for them. It's like this, and they're super protective about, about the, you know, like, they're, yeah, they're super protective of the cops, they're super protective of private property. Um, they don't like when they're like homelessness issue was like super visible. Yeah, so yeah, they hated it. They wanted nothing to do with it. And it's interesting now as years pass, there's like a weird, celebration by agencies and people who and even the city sometimes there's like weird celebration of how cool it was and it's like at the time I, we got a lot of shit for it i'm still it ruined my life i go and ruined i go and ruined my life it ruined a lot of people's lives was that like right at the kind of the beginning of you being involved like yeah i worked for like uh over, over a year because then prior to that, I was at Boyle Street. And prior to that, I was at Jasper Place Wellness Center. So in between Jasper Place and Boyle Street is when Pegaway would happen. But I was just recently at Bissell. I was doing a lot of like encampment housing stuff around income support. My whole area was just income support, income support. But like a lot of my background is actually around like climate justice and work like that. So I've done a lot of grassroots organizing in that world, which is super relevant to encampment world. Um, so I got poached by another organization to just do art stuff. So that seemed appropriate. So I just left this less than three months ago. I, I was gonna say, if, if you like, you, uh, maybe you're older than you'd look, you look quite youthful to me. So I'm assuming you don't have a huge work background, like being young, but can you talk a bit about like what brought you to the work you're doing and you know a bit about your work history which i guess you sort of already started to tell i'm kind of asking after you've answered but no it's okay um so let's let's so i 
I started in this particular work um, in like 2018 at Jasper Place Wellness Center. Um, loved working there. It's kind of like my intro to this work. But then from there onwards, I was also doing like a lot of grassroots organizing around like climate justice campaigns here in the province or just like, I don't know, I feel like super lucky that I've been granted a lot of guidance around what we understand now is like land back. So right now I work as a NVDA trainer and blockades trainer for Indigenous Peoples Power Project. We are like a network that tries to skill up Indigenous communities in areas that are important uh, for them in their fight against like oftentimes oil and gas companies, um, any type of like corporate entity that occupies our territories, uh, proposes projects in our territories, any type of work that has to do with building power within Indigenous communities. We have a network of trainers and we like train people in, in like all types of things, um, arts, blockades, NVDA, anything to do with direct action. So that's something I've been doing since like 2019. Um, and I've gained a lot of experience in, the, in, in that world, um, traveled a lot in that world, learned a lot from like, uh, from nations down south about how they mobilize people in their territory. And then also in this kind of journey around like the cultural work that I'm trying to bring back to my family. I've also picked up a lot of like jobs and skills. And so I don't, I'm also in school full time. I don't know, a lot of people, a lot of my friends don't even know this cause I'm like, it feels like it's like the least interesting thing about me. Um, <laughs> but a lot of the work that I've done, I feel like has been not necessarily like jobs. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> Like, are you saying a lot of the work you're doing has been, like, kind of volunteer and, like, just out of, like, your own interest and passion in it, like, outside of what you're actually employed to do? Yeah, and I feel like it's been that way since I was, like, even, like, 16. Like, I was, like, booking hardcore shows when I was 16, 17. Um, and I think that's where it kind of opened my eyes to this DIY world. And then, so I've, I've definitely, like, been, I feel like, a community helper and organizer since like before even becoming an adult. Yeah, no, that that sounds cool. Uh, let's backtrack on that a bit. So you were 16 years old booking hardcore shows? Yeah, that was kind of, I think that was like the first thing that I was ever doing that was like my thing where I was understanding that not everything we do has to be done with permission and not everything we do has to be that organized and we can just throw shit ourselves <laughs> that that's good i i had no idea i was gonna get that out of that question that's very cool so was hardcore kind of the first like subculture that you were like really involved with yeah i think so i think so and it's really funny because a lot of the the relationships i built there i look up to those people who kind of took me in and um I think informed a lot of my, a lot of my praxis, but I don't know. I also feel like a lot of my identity has informed the work I do. Like my, um, so my mom, uh, her family comes from Yellowquill First Nation. My dad's from El Salvador. Um, you know, my dad coming from El Salvador, this like violent, violent war. So just like, I guess this, like, I think I have this like inherent pull towards like this decolonial work and this like super community-centered work that has kind of just always been 
kind of always been how I've how I've organized and looking back at hardcore I'm like that makes so much sense <laughs> yeah no what uh what was the the your best memory of booking shows like what show went perfectly or did they not go perfectly honestly it's like such a blur in my head because I I be, I was I'm working on a project right now um kind of about about hardcore and it's been like feels like it's like pulling teeth trying to get things in my brain to remember even yeah I don't even know it was but I it also I think helped me a lot understanding like how to how to like book events like I do a lot of event organizing and then it also really helped me in my like direct action organizing experience I was like way too young to be handling that much money like <laughs> so I think I had a really early start at like handling handling things in that way but how uh, how did you get into booking their shows like who who took you under their wing and like showed you how to do it uh, I had a friend who I I don't even know how I I don't even know how I knew I knew this guy. Um, well, actually, I it's really funny now. It's like all coming back to me in a, in one way. Uh, I know I remember Ryland was really celebratory of me back then. Uh, but I actually got hired at the Mercury Room to like book matinee shows, uh, and then that was like the first like employment I had. And I got first time I got like paid for that work. Um, but my good friend Joel uh a bit later in my life was like super super helpful and he was also really helpful in like informing my my work in harm reduction as well like I think he was kind of the first one to really open my eyes to this world of harm reduction I you know looking back I don't think I was like 16 I'm thinking I was maybe more like 17 18 but still you know my brain's like this small at that time no still still very cool still like i i don't know a, a huge amount of it hardcore i know some people that kind of come from that background and it really seems like a, a a one of the better subcultures actually everyone i know who's kind of like come out of there has a lot of like structure and you know it's like informed the way they go into a lot of other stuff so it it makes perfect sense and the i mean the logo flips is kind of a hardcore thing as well right like i think even what misery sing signals has like a pretty iconic oilers thing i think maybe i'm wrong but that i mean that makes sense very cool i i had no idea that would be kind of the catalyst to this all but is there like is there one specific thing that made you want to go ahead with like harm reduction and climate activism and houselessness like was there one thing that made you like uh like extra like that made you care about these things more than the average person or is that just kind of coincidental and what happened as life went on um <clears throat> I think is like a, so my mom was like 60 scooped. Uh, I had to like really, really fight to learn more about where I come from and our people. 
And I feel super privileged because I know a lot of people who are displaced as whatever that means don't necessarily um, ever find their way home or it maybe it looks very different, but I like really, really had to chase for my, I really had to chase my culture and really have to chase, um, you know, that like these stories of where we come from. And they think the more and more I unraveled these worlds, I kind of started to reject these incredibly damage centered narratives of our people these narratives that we come from violence and trauma, et cetera. But it's like, at the end of the day, I also know that we've always been scientists. We've always been doctors. We've always been artists. We've always been researchers. Um, you know, and we have the original instructions of living a good life. And at the end of the day, like, I think that informs everything I do. And that like, I'm just like, I've just learned so much from being on different front lines or like learning from people who, really really believe in defending their territories and protecting our people that I think there's like no way that I could unsee any of that and I'm like super convinced like we have our people have all the answers we need like our people have all the answers to these issues that we continue to face um and I think when I again coming from like a climate justice kind of background it's so relevant to harm reduction and that work because like you know we aren't we are not a carceral people I don't believe we've ever been a carceral people I don't think that is to say we're void of governance we're not void of governance we're not void of consequences but um I think it's it's just seems so obvious to me that harm reduction is like you know and that I don't know I just and I think I started to connect the dots between like encampment displacement has everything to do with land and child welfare has everything to do with land residential schools have everything to do with land um so i think as soon as i started connecting those dots it all became very very clear to me that there is no other way around these issues there's no other way towards our justice there is no other way towards our like collective liberation as indigenous peoples if it does not include harm reduction, if it does not include um, people who live outside. So we talk about all about this land back movement and it has it has everything to do with, um, yeah, with our people in the urban centers. Can you, uh, I, I should have maybe asked this at first, this question could be a bit out of place, but since this episode is gonna actually release like right away i feel any advice you would have for what people could do to help in this extreme cold like it'll still be extremely cold when the episode comes out so i've seen you and your like friends and colleagues posting a lot about what could be done like in this I mean, always be done, but especially in this cold snap. Is there any stuff that you think is, like, really pertinent that people could do, like, right now to help out? Kind of the, just, like, the usual stuff that you're seeing, like the the donations, wherever you're seeing people asking for donations, um, going out with folk to encampments. Um, I don't know. It's, like... I know there's a lot of work being done around like working with the city and advocating in the courts and all that, and which is super important. 
Um, but I wouldn't, maybe I'm just like so defeated by all of this that I'm just kind of, I'm at, for like, for me, a lot of the wins come from just like the material realities of people right now. And that would be like advocating for warming spaces. That's a big one. Um, we joke about it a lot. Cause it's like the city almost every year is like surprised by the snow. It's almost like every year they forget that it's going to get cold because they don't have a plan every year. Um, so I would, I, I guess I would just say, continue to donate, continue to give, like donate your time, et cetera. Even just money too, straight money, like giving, that's another thing. You can also just like give community money. You can just give community resources. You don't have to go through this bureaucratic route of like donating to Bissell and hoping that the funds trickle down into, into community. Um, a lot of people have been doing like gift cards lately, which I love because it's just like, again, like low barrier, like just just give community the money, give community the resources. Don't necessarily like depend on agencies to to manage all that. That yeah, I never really like thought too much about like it just being too many like middlemen like to give to all the agencies for them to give out it's like i mean it, i'm sure it helps but it probably goes through a lot of hands that it doesn't necessarily need to so maybe like the direct giving definitely means more or would help more do you know like all the camps that they were clearing last week are they like they set up again right away or are they like kind of patrolling them i don't actually so i wasn't even in town perhaps for most of those sweeps i don't actually know which which ones pop back up but i know that they always pop back up if not like in the same spot down the road um they always pop back up so i don't know i, I don't exactly uh, yeah i don't exactly know which ones have erected in the same sites do, do you know like approximately how long like if they clear a site and then people go back and kind of set up did they kind of let it go for a bit or are they like back to clearing it like really rapidly i think a lot of a lot of it depends on like what is and this is another thing that i don't think people get that it's like eps just like operates on its own terms like it's not even like someone from the city is like, oh, this encampment needs to get taken down. No, they just do it because that's their like job is, is you know, is to protect private property. Um, so I, I, there isn't really like a, like they say that there is like, there's parameters of high risk and parameters of notice and parameters of like when things need to come down and which sites can last longer. There's all, they say all this, but I really don't, I don't know. I don't have an answer because <laughs> it's different every time um yeah like i mean i've i've personally just seen i mean i i saw the video the other day and then i saw them issued like a, a statement about the video that was clearly not true and then like they must always just be trying to like play games with people and like it, it's kind of their way or the highway which must be even more frustrating yeah yeah, it's it's super just conditional on like how they feel that day. In my, I mean, I can say that, and people are like, no, it's no more that. But 
I don't think people realize how like disorganized and how unstructured the encampment situation is with the city. Like there's been times where the cops have swept encampments and the city doesn't like doesn't even know, HS doesn't even know, or like yeah, it's not really not as organized as people think. It's like a handful of folk who make those calls um, and they have these little templates for what an ethical encampment removal looks like. Um, but they, they're not accountable to anyone other than maybe the police commission, but that's just also super unhelpful. I don't know enough about that, but. I was also, I was reading a lot of rules that they claim they follow, like, you know, if it's under a certain temperature and whatever, leave them be. But it seems like all that's gone out the window too this week is it was the coldest week of the year and that's when all the sweeps happen. Yeah, yeah. So they, they find loopholes. So there's like, so the city of Edmonton says you can't sweep. I think it's like minus 20 maybe. I can't remember what the number is, but um. But we've seen it for months, and even last year, I don't even know if they had, I can't remember, but I know that they always find loopholes. A lot of it is like, oh, it's unoccupied, it's garbage. Um, they can sweep garbage in minus 50, apparently, because uh, that's great use of time. They can sweep things that are high risk. That can mean maybe they have propane at the encampment or something to stay warm. Or, um, But again, like these are these are terms that they define and that they get to argue. There's there like there's no higher level of pro, like proceeds that they have to go through to prove that an encampment is like high risk. Um, so they can they can kind of determine that on on their own, and the city and the province just trusts them to do that. So you were saying before you're a little defeated, which I mean obviously makes sense but everyone else i've talked to seemed like i would have actually thought any of my previous guests about this type of stuff would be a bit more defeative or defeated but they all seem to like err on the side of like optimism what is it that has you like feeling a bit more like negative about all of it than other people might <laughs> um just because like i think like we go through this every year and i think this system is designed to make us feel like we're getting closer so when which is what happened even post post peg away when we you know there's a feeling of oh they have encampment policy now they have encampment response policy now we're closer to this being done in a good way um it feels like every year we're like given new language and new new loopholes that make us feel like we're, we're getting closer. Um, and that's not to say that we aren't necessarily, but I think I just get like, even looking at what happened at Roland the other day when it was like, it was super, super cold and they still swept the encampment. And I was like, it felt like we're like back in 2020. And like, it, I just feel like, like this is like a, and I and I say this a lot, and I think it sounds kind of heady to some people. It sounds kind of like, um, but like, you know, we've we've been so something that I I kept joking about like the other day. It's not joking, but I kept bringing like notice too was they have these goddamn muskrat hats that they wear, and I always reference. I'm like, these are the same damn hats they wore a generation ago. 
generation before that, generation before that, because they've been doing this for generations. This isn't, and I, I say how like when they put that hat on, they have this like blood memory that's like activated that makes them feel really strong. They have their like their white ancestors like propping them up when they put that hat on, and their blood memory gets activated because they're so fucking used to displacing indigenous people, and. People always say like, oh, the answer is like affordable housing, affordable housing, but it's like the existence of EPS and the nation state is like a fraction of time since we've been here in our homelands. And the sweeps have like everything to do with the ongoing erasure and unaliving of our people for the colonial project, for property, for property owners, for land. And it's not just about housing. It's And we, you know, we can't deracialize this issue. And every time I see this issue come forward, it's still, we're still not talking about it as like an indigenous issue, it was like a settler colonial issue. Like, yeah, there's non-indigenous people that are unhoused, but nobody benefits from the settler colonial violence. Nobody benefits, especially indigenous people. But, and I think that's like, for me, I just feel so frustrated because it's like, there's no police reform. Like, like you can't police reform your way out of this degree, this degree of violence. Um, so when, when, you know, when the cops come to these encampments and they start pulling up their weapons, they like tell us that community is dangerous. And it's again, this criminalization of indigenous people, this assumed violence, assuming that we are violence, assuming that we are void of order or governance. They tell us these encampments are dangerous. And it's actually when they start pulling out their weapons, start pointing it at, <laughs> you know, at community members that we see that it's literal, literally mirroring, mirroring the same violence that we've been dealing with for generations and generations. So I'm kind of like, and again, it sounds super heady and it's like, what are we gonna do about it? We're all helpless. And in, in a way, yeah, like that's that's why we like strive for little wins and we strive for like these fleeting moments of self-determination that we do have. But it's so frustrating because like, I don't know if I can attend another damn rally or if I can sign another letter you know, my, my ancestors have been signing letters since time immemorial advocating for our humanity. Yeah, no, I, I, I fully, like, I personally understand why you would be defeated. I just wondered if you wanted to, like, define why that would be. I, I absolutely agree with you. I thought asking, like, Will and Rylan, everyone, I thought I was going to get more of a defeated answer. It wasn't like I wanted one. I just kind of expected them to to at least, like, say, you know, this is, like, super defeating at times. But it's, uh, again, like, not that I wanted you to feel that way, but I appreciate you just, like, being honest and saying it's, like, all compounds, like, each each time you guys take a loss, it adds up. But you know on that note can you uh what was the last little win that you got like what what was the last glimpse of positivity in all this like is there one close enough to even remember just to kind of preface it like i also realized that i have to be super mindful about not like projecting this like miserable defeated attitude all the time because every day you know sometimes I am super surprised about what's being done and I'm like oh my god this is huge like that um but thinking about the last little win you know even so I'm, I'm a big advocate for like direct action and even like 
at Roland, there was so many witnesses there that the cops didn't sweep that day. And sometimes it is as simple as like, how do we get through this day? How do we get through the next day? Um, and it didn't happen that day because people got in between the sweep. And for me, that's a little win. And it, it's a super fleeting win. But I think for me, that kind of, it looked like people were a bit activated by that and they kind of saw, I think that some of them were kind of shocked <laughs> that that was possible, that you can literally just intervene on violence. And I think that to me was a little win, even though it got swept the next day, but. No, like, I, I totally get what you mean that. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things, maybe doesn't seem that like monumental but like even like you're saying one day like in that circumstance is a whole day like and someone like me that is kind of like seeing a lot of this through like social media posts and everyone sharing so much of it it does look to me like the crowds are kind of like growing like the the first few videos, the first couple of days I saw people posting, and then like a few days later, it seemed like there was more protesters and spectators and people like filming the wrongdoings of of the like quote authorities and stuff. So I know that it'll it takes a lot more than people just kind of standing around, but that must be on the positive side of things too right like just the more people kind of being empathetic and even just the more footage to catch them doing things wrong that's gotta help too right oh for sure and i again like that helps the material conditions of community like people are that is as simple as like people are getting newer socks more frequently like it, it everything to me is about and it like i really do feel like it's that simple and it's like you know, not, not all of us can be the politicians, not all of us can be the lawyers, not all of us can be the the outreach workers. Someone also needs to, like, make the soup. Someone also needs to, like, buy the socks. Someone also needs to ask people for money to buy the socks. So I think there's, like, this, this kind of, like, circular model of mutual aid that people are starting to see now, like they haven't before. And there's even a bit more like cross solidarity work happening where people are kind of finding a position for themselves in this work. So um, something that I was, I was really stoked about, I've been working with um, some local Palestinians on some of the advocacy they're doing um, and some of the actions they're doing, some of the art that they want help with. Uh, and I've kind of built a bit of a relationship with some of the community um, who are like, you know, organizing for a free Palestine. And there was one moment where there's like, I saw a text message in a group chat. Someone was like, we ordered 50 pizzas. It was like the free Palestine. Um, like there's a, a group chat. I can't even remember which group chat. There's so many group chats, but I was like, oh my God, the Palestinians are sending us pizza. And we show, and there's this big stack of pizza that shows up. And it's like, this is, I don't think this has happened before. Like, I don't think, and then I think they're the ones that actually posted the, posted the video of the cop, of the, of the cops uh, arresting oh right right i think that is actually where where i saw it first yeah that and that's huge i don't think people see how cool that is like that type of that type of kind of cross movement connection is so important so so important and it like 
I think, you know, the state is terrified of that type of solidarity happening. Happening, They're terrified when Palestinians and indigenous people come together and start calling calling out these violent, like violent colonial war machines. Um, they hate that shit. It was so cool. Yeah, I think I forget where, but I definitely saw an image of like all the the pizza boxes stacked up. Probably me. Yeah, I. <laughs> that's a that. I mean, that whole thing is really interesting. Even uh, just, I guess it would have been a week ago that I was lucky enough to talk to Rochelle, and she was explaining to me that photos are not. Like, I mean, there are instances when they wouldn't be welcome, but photos at these situations really help kind of, like, spread awareness. And, like, I mean, like, I'm sure a lot of people would have never seen the pizza without that post. So it's it's really interesting to me, like, the power of imagery at these type of things and how far it can go. Like, I would have thought that... I don't know, it was frowned upon maybe. Like I was expecting Rochelle to tell me like they weren't really welcome. There's a lot of people kind of like doing unethical photography down there, but it seems like for the most part, it's all pretty positive and it's helping they spread the message. It's like kind of like your stickers. I feel it's just another way to like get this message to people who might not have heard it other ways, and that might be the catalyst for them to like show an interest or get involved. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, I would agree. <laughs> I would agree with that. And I think, I think now especially, like this was probably the first time I'd seen that much media at a sweep. I'd never seen it that. Like, I've, I really rarely ever seen media at sweeps. Um, there's a point where the, the police were like not, I had this one memory actually of when I was working at Bissell, I don't work, work there anymore. So maybe I can just say what I want. But um, uh, I was like outside during a sweep and there was a cop taking, or they had media. I don't know if it was, their, cause you know, like EPS, they released their own little, like almost like their own little music videos. And they have like, they're like these little promo videos and they have like all these yeah. like, like B-real footage of cops in action. And, yeah. Uh, and I was watching them outside. They were going into this person's tent and like filming it and like just like, you know, a whole fucking panoramic of this person's tent. Um, and who knows what happened to that footage. But I think one of the one of the reasons why sometimes we're like super untrustworthy of media is that it's like I think a lot of times just people, our lives are like spectacles. They're just they're just this like spectacle of tragedy. Um, you know, not not once have I ever seen media cover how a lot of people in encampments are fucking fluent language speakers. They're knowledge keepers. They're like artists. They're like, you know, people with so much to offer this world. But I'm just like, what the hell? Like, what, why are we taking videos of this person's encampment when they have like so much more to offer, to offer the camera than that? Um, so I think that is the, one of the largest like for me, at least, I just I, I definitely feel a certain way when when people start filming the violence that we experience. But, you know, I don't know. It, it like it definitely has to happen. But I think that is probably the hesitancy is that there's just so many like there's so much footage of our people in bad situations when there's so much more to what we have to show the world. <laughs> 
did uh, the police like really like trying to have no one get like photos and footage like i've i've seen a few clips where they're obviously saying no cameras or whatever but do you know what the actual like rules are again like you must be able to film them right yeah you're allowed to film them in public yeah absolutely but i think yeah like you can you can film them and i don't see them I think a lot of times they're they're used to it, but it, again, it depends on the visibility. Like there's been times that I've been in encampment sweeps where they're like smaller and there is no media and there's a handful of people and they didn't tell anyone they were gonna sweep it. And then you start filming and they're like, whoa, 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 like don't, you know, like they will intervene a bit. Um, again, it just, a lot of it is just depending on what is going on, what type of visibility is already there. Something like Roland, like there was media there. There's no way they can like, start stepping in front of, but I mean, well, well, they did actually. Yeah, they did. They did assault someone who was filming, but typically, typically they'll just kind of give you shit about it and then they'll walk away. But have you, uh, like you've never been injured in the line of protest, have you? And like, I saw a lot of your footage. It seemed like you were really in it like really up close i wonder if you've ever like had a an incident where they've like yeah i wasn't even there that long i just <laughs> but i i mean i guess i was i don't know hours maybe eight hours but um no i've actually i will say i've never seen police arrest like a someone at encampment that wasn't a community member living in the account like and that's something I was also really saying is that like we got footage of this but like this happens to community every day like every day EPS assaults and steals like fucking kidnaps <laughs> community every day that happens to people and there's just no visibility of it and I was also saying and the, we haven't like what's circulating around right now it's that people got arrested at the and like protesters got arrested like arrested um and I don't even, I, and I hate that word protester because it's like, these are just like indigenous people like hanging out in our homelands. Like we're just hanging out in our homelands. We're not criminals. We're not homeless. Like we're just hanging out, witnessing um, cop violence. And, but yeah, but what I was saying is that, yeah, there was like stuff circulating around people getting arrested, but no one's identifying how it is all, it was all indigenous people that got arrested to my understanding. I think there might have been one other person, but I don't. I, I don't actually know. I wasn't there for that part, but um, yeah, it was all indigenous people that got arrested, and I don't know. But yeah, like like that was the first time I'd ever seen an escalation like that at a sweep that was not targeted against someone who was living at the encampment. Because the cops get violent like that with community all the time, every day. You just happen to see it on film and it happened to be, you know, at a, at a sweep that a bunch of like white women were standing around at. <laughs> yeah. The, like the video was them like arresting a journalist, right? Like was it someone just covering the sweep? Like they weren't pretty far from a protester if it's like what I'm thinking. I wasn't, I wasn't there for that either, but I think they're, um, I don't know, but again, there's like, the police have a monopoly on, they have a monopoly on violence, first of all, 
um, and they get to determine what violence is and what violence isn't. So I think, like it's it had like it happened really quick. It sounds like, but I don't think I don't know. Like people were really shocked that it's like, oh, they arrested a journalist, but it's like they don't give a shit who they're <laughs> who they're arresting. Like there was nothing that that would have necessarily even told them that there's like protesters versus like the people who are encampments. Because again, I hate that distinction of like this like othering of like these people are community members that we need to keep safe and we're gonna like that doesn't exist for indigenous people there's no line of arrestable and non-arrestable and media and not media like cops don't give a shit um we are in the inherent enemy the existence of the police force is to say that we are the inherent enemy <laughs> so i don't think it really mattered that brandy was media or not she's an indigenous person um getting in the way of the sweep um, I actually don't know. I mean, that I understand what you mean. Terrible. Like, they, I know you don't like the distinction. Maybe they should distinguish more. I mean, they shouldn't really be doing it to anyone, but especially like kind of innocent people just like covering what's going on, like kind of seem like maybe the last person they should be violent or arrest, but. You uh, mentioned earlier, I, I keep trying to find a way to, to kind of interject with this. You've mentioned like your art and art helping marginalized people. Is Can you like speak a bit to that? Like I know when I was asking you about your stickers, you were saying like you've done other art as kind of a protest. Is, is there any other projects you've done like to kind of speak for this stuff? So I've, I've, um, I'm a really big advocate for like art builds. And I believe that like, like even like my sticker as a PDF, any of the other pieces I've made, they're like accessible for anyone. I don't feel like I have any ownership over them. I'm like, take them, print them, make t-shirts. I don't care. Make, you know, I'm like, make bootleg t-shirts, sell them, pay your rent. I don't care. Um, do what you want with them. Uh, but I think, I mean, I've also made, I have, I don't know if it, it feels kind of silly to be like, oh, I've made stickers and banners and blah, blah, blah. But I've done a lot of what I think people call like protest art, you'd say. Um, that's where a lot of my like art um, foundations come from. Um, again, I've, I've learned a lot from, from people who their whole world is that world of protest art and resistance art and creative resistance. Uh, so I've done like a lot of art build stuff. I've made a lot of banners. I've done a lot of screen printing. That's another big thing I do. Um, I try to use it as like a Skillshare though. So if I'm gonna be like right now, I have this idea that I really want to do like a stop the sweeps art build. So in my head, what that's gonna look like is I'm just gonna somehow find like 800 bucks, uh, rent out a space, and just do a bunch of screen printing and banner making and just kind of facilitate some kind of collective coming together of making art. I feel like that's what I do more than anything else. I think I bring people together <laughs> to make art more than anything else. Um, yeah, I guess like another really big one that's like unrelated to necessarily protest art, but um, I did this like fish skin bikini that really blew up. Like it really, I actually have to ship it out soon because I donated it to this um, this Palestine raffle. It's like, uh, it's sending money to this organization, but that was a really big one that blew up that was like not for anyone else other than me. I like had this fish and I like tanned its skin and I made it into this tiny little bikini. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
but other than that I think a lot of my a lot of the art that art that I do is kind of just as like a vessel for um vessel for a vessel for community um did you learn a bit about like the power of like protest art and that stuff through hardcore because it seems like that would would sort of like go together as well not even a little bit. I, I love hardcore, but I would say in the contemporary context, I would not grant it that much cool credit <laughs> from my experience. I, I am. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Again, I think I just had, I've been so blessed to have like really cool, radical, like indigenous mentors and peers that come from various front lines and really believe in direct action and really believe in this like decolonial work uh, that has inspired a lot of what I do. Um, a lot of it, I feel like it's just this, like intuitive learning nature that I have, but I would, I wouldn't, I, I would really credit a lot of my influence to my peers and my mentors and relatives um, that do this work and have done this work before me and have been trying to get the land back for thousands of years. <laughs> Not thousands of years, but you know what I mean, that have been working to, working towards living the good life for thousands of years. <laughs> well, when I was talking to Rochelle, she told me about how she kind of grew up, like, not really involved in, like, her roots and stuff, and it's now she's kind of going back and unlearning and learning all about that. Is is this something you grew up immersed in, or are you learning about all this like later in life as well? Yeah, no. So I don't come from a cultural family at all. Like again, my mom was scooped, meaning that she was. She, I mean, the language I use is that she was stolen as a child, um, placed into like a white home. It wasn't until later in life that she went back to her res and kind of, or like back to her community and kind of, put some, you know, put some put some effort into like finding, finding her family, um, which wasn't super successful, still hasn't been super successful for either of us, but we have a bit more foundations now, I would say, or I do at least. Um, and being that, you know, like my family comes from Treaty 4 territory, we're in Treaty 6, I'm super lucky to like have a bit of a grasp on my relatives that do live around here. Um, I've been super lucky to you know, to be able to go to ceremony and like hear my language, et cetera. But I absolutely did not come from absolutely. Yeah, absolutely not. Did not come from a culture family at all. Not, not even a little bit. So then what, what made you want to learn about your culture? Like, was there anything specific or it just like came with, with age like the other ones? Um, I think a lot of it was just about like placing my lived experience into this work and being like, why is it that I don't speak my language? And how long ago? And I, you know, I tell my mom this, I don't think she thinks it's as cool as I do, but to my understanding, I would probably be the first generation that did not grow up in care out of my mom's family. Um, and I, like, to me, that's, that's huge. To yeah, me, that's that huge. is huge. Uh, it's huge, but I don't think, but you know, but she had a pretty good life growing up, so I don't think she looks at it as that that big of a deal. But um, I think I just started asking questions about where I fit into this work that I feel so drawn to, and it was very simple. Um, and I don't, feel, yeah, I don't know. I again, I think, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think, 
I very quickly just got roped up into into my culture, but I don't know. Cult like again, culture isn't necessarily like these activities that we do. I don't believe that culture is like you know, I don't think I can like categorize what culture is and isn't by like, oh, like we smudge sometimes and I we dance and like these material things. I think um in a lot of ways I'm learning that it is not that simple and we are much more vast of a people than to just simply reduce culture to like things that we do or the arts and crafts that we do and the um yeah so I think I've just been like convinced that we again we have the original instructions to living a good life and all the answers to the questions I have exist in, in the culture exist in our stories it exists in our governing systems and I'm super secure in that these days. When you were growing up, were you like, were you at least aware that there was a culture that you just didn't know all about? Or was it something that like you didn't even really pay that much attention to growing up? Like you didn't know it was missing. It just wasn't really a factor. Um, I don't think I, I definitely didn't think it was, I don't know. I think my mom really struggled with like identity with her identity for a long time. And I'm again, like my dad's from El Salvador. I was super familiar with that. Um, we know where we come from in that world. And that's a whole diaspora that I, that I deal with, but um, I don't. So I have a brother who um, we have different mothers. He's Cree. I'm not Cree. I'm Soto Anishinaabe. <laughs> um, but he has very different life than I do because he is racialized in a way that I'm not. Um, and I think, so yes, I'm Soto Anishinaabe, but my lived experience has mostly not really been that of an indigenous person from the North Americas. Like I racialized, I mean, I wouldn't argue that actually um, with my mom's experience being scooped and this whole world of um, settler colonialism that I experienced here in, as an indigenous person here in Canada is real. But I think my day to day is very different than it would have been if I was like maybe more visibly indigenous or if I was more, um, I don't know. I just, I think I, I don't want to be here, be sitting here and saying, oh, I struggled with racism. I hope, Cause I absolutely don't feel like that's what happened to me. And I think racialization has everything to do with your lived experience and colorism has everything to do with your lived experience. Like I, I, I always tell people, I'm like, oh my, that's my Salvador. And that's why I look like this. That's why I look like this. That's why I have this last name. Um, and it's granted me quite a bit of privilege, I wouldn't doubt. But I don't think I grew up lost necessarily. But then I think as as I've unraveled more about who I am and where we come from, the more I feel I'm like, wow, like I'm so lucky to know this and I'm so much better because of it. And I couldn't imagine going my whole life without knowing these things. I know that's cool and definitely answers the question. I just wondered if you like knew what you were missing out on or if it was kind of like not as present until you started like unraveling and all. And it sounds like that is what happened. And that, I mean, that's great that you can, because who knows sometimes when people are younger, they might not take the same approach to like learning the history of things like when they're a bit older and a bit not that you weren't mature when you were younger but i'm sure you're you're most mature now right so it's probably the best time to like handle something of that magnitude like it's not 
really a, a little thing to learn all about, like your history like that. For sure. For sure. And, and it is it is a lot of work trying to like piece together who you are. But I feel very, very less so like, like we, we a lot of times in circles, we use this word like connected or disconnected. And we equate it to like being urban means you're like disconnected or being disconnected to culture. Just all this language around like disconnect and loss and what we don't have. And I don't feel that way anymore. I don't feel disconnected. Like I know who my family is. I know where we come from. I know how to place myself now because of that. Um, and I just hate that word disconnected. I don't think that's a real thing. Um. <laughs> I got to... I gotta ask you about bowling. You, I, I don't know if you knew this was coming. I've found a way to talk to everyone except Rochelle about bowling, and you're no different. I, uh, I tried to, to get some intel out of Rylan. He, uh, he didn't have, have many secrets to expose for. But how, how would you say you rank in the pin pals? Are, are you the best or the worst or in between? I was thinking about this recently because you know what? There was this tournament that we all had and I re realized I was like, I wasn't first pick. I wasn't first pick on a team and I was like, okay, I see how it is. But I think I've been bowling for maybe like two, three years now. And you would think I'd gotten better, but I, I haven't at all. And I'm not just saying that to be like humble. Like, I mean, like I have no consistency. I still don't throw the ball right. I think I can score high sometimes, but I have no consistency. Um, I still bowl nearly every week, and I still don't have a method to success. I don't know why. I think I had one pin. No, I have two pins. I got four strikes in a row on my birthday last year. I don't know what that was. But there's no – I don't have – I don't know. I don't know. I don't think anyone's dying to put me on their team first, but I think I'm a good pick. I think I'm a good alternate. I think I'm a reliable second pick. But what's your highest score? I think, I think it would have been just 200 because I, I do have a 200 pin. I don't remember getting it. I don't know why I don't remember getting it, but that happened at least once, but I don't know what that looks like. That That's huge it i think that everyone i've asked for their score that seems to be the highest so maybe you are the best well it's interesting because i don't think you've interviewed anyone since will got that really high score no no i know i asked will and then I think he got that a couple weeks ago i think when i asked him he said 175 but it's more now. Yeah, I think he got like, it was like one Friday, it was just like, there, was, there were many of us and he got like, like I think it was like, it might've been three something. It was three, oh shit, I can't remember. But I, the funny thing is we actually went bowling like the next day and there was this guy that came in and he was like drunk and his pants were falling down his hat sideways and he bowls like high, like higher than we'll score. And he's, he's just like, oh, is that a high score? And it's like his first time bowling in 10 years. So we're pissed. We're like, what the hell? This guy doesn't even care. This guy is just here to drink beer. Like, he doesn't even know what this means. And they put his name on his board, like, on the board. And Will's name got bumped down. And it was just, like, trash. Hated it. And then, again, that's to say that anyone can be a good bowler. 
So if you're saying you're inconsistent, if you've got a 200, but then like how how low can it go on on a bad game? I think I feel like we played a game once where we were like, who can get the lowest? And you can, I mean, you can hit gutters the whole time if you, if you want. Um, I think my lowest might be like thirty five or something. But no, even no, even that seems low. I think my my average low, like a super super low day for me, is like eighty maybe. Breaking a hundred is kind of like, at the very least, you got to break a hundred. How uh, do you guys go every week? It's funny. Out of all the pin pals I've talked to, I don't think I asked how frequently you guys go. Like, is it a a weekly? thing yeah well i mean someone has like someone books a lane every week it's kind of like you show up you show up but if you don't come this week you're not like not invited to the next week it's a weekly thing for sure but there's a different different lineup there's some people that are more consistent i would argue i am on the more consistent end i'm not out here compromising my bowling my bowling night for like or yeah, I'm not out here like, oh, I'm tired tonight. I'm not going bowl. Like, no, none of that's happening on my end. I'm never like, oh, I gotta go for dinner with my friend. No, I'm canceling dinners. I'm missing birthdays. <laughs> like, I'm skipping out on assignments to go bowl. Um, but everyone's different in their way. There's definitely some consistent bowlers. It sounds like I mean you're dedicated and you can get a two hundred. You might be a good first pick. Like I, th- I think you might be downplaying that a bit. I think I think whoever didn't choose you first probably regrets it, or will <laughs> after hearing this. Yeah, I can make a good case. I can make a case for myself, but how many people are on the pin pals? I don't know. It's fluctuated a bit, and there's no right now. There's no um. There's no organized structure right now. Sometimes there's new people, and people are always welcome to come bowl with us. Well, not really, but you gotta be serious. You can't be no, yeah, no, no fooling around allowed. But is that like, yeah, what's the protocol? If someone wants to bowl with you guys, do they have to come and like? Prove that they can hang for a couple of times before you actually <laughs> kind of invite them in. Like, there's no way they can just show up and and be down, right? Oh, that's so funny. You gotta we gotta make sure you can hang first. That's so funny. I don't know. You just gotta wait. You just gotta get the invite. You just gotta be there. You gotta be there when it's getting talked about. Maybe I don't know. I uh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, like, if they need an invite from one of you guys, so just like. Randoms aren't showing up, although maybe if if they listen to enough of these and kind of catch on to the bowling outro every episode, they might start to like clock where you guys are and try to infiltrate the pin bells. Yeah, because you're interviewing all our all my friends. We're gonna start putting the pieces together and. Well, I'm I'm gonna miss like after when I I start like talking about other things with other people, I'm gonna miss the like easy feel good outro of bowling. Like it's safe with all of you. We can talk about like a a necessary 
thing to talk about, but a bit of a like heavier subject and then leave on a positive note with the bowling. But once I lose that with people, I'm not going to have my like easy outro. You know, you have to come up with something else. Yeah, true. I guess I will definitely have to come up with, with something as as good, but I don't know. For now, it, it seems like it might not be be possible. The bowling is like such a a feel good note to leave it on. Like no one, maybe a lot of people don't bowl, but I don't think anyone actively hates on bowling. It's a pretty positive experience. Yeah, I would say so. Sometimes it's funny. I have like friends that I've been friends with a long time, and that just will not come bowling. They're just like disinterested in it. Um, what I I don't get it. How could you not want to? Even if you don't want to bowl, you can go hang out at a cool spot. Like the aesthetics of bowling are almost the coolest part. That's why we go for the photos, of course. <laughs> we go for the photos. I think that's why, like most people do most things these days, right? Is to like prove that they were there. So why would you not want to? Prove Absolutely. you were at Plaza. Prove people like hanging out with me. <laughs> yeah, is that? I guess I should ask. Is that your main? Like when you want to relax from all this stuff, if you ever get to, is it bowling that you go to for that like escape, or is it art or both? Um, art bowling. I don't know, man. I don't know. I I like to cook. Um, what else do I like to do? I like to cook. I like to bowl. I like to make art. There's got to be something else I'm missing, but those are like three good ones, though. Be hard to like. I mean, you you put so much time into all the home production and stuff. And then bowling seems to take up a lot. Cooking takes like the most time. So I think pretty got your hands full with those, I would assume. For sure. I feel I feel so lucky because, like, again, I, I just came back from Dubai, right, and I was at um the COP28 Summit and places like these big institutional places where you, I think you're made to feel small, and I was so homesick. I was there for two weeks, and I was just, like, dying to come home because um, it really affirmed to me that I'm just, like, so celebrated here. I feel so loved and celebrated here in 36, and I have so many people in my corner um, who are excited about the work I do and want to do work with me and want to support me and want to hang out, get food with me, get hot pop with me. Like, I just feel so, especially coming back home from Dubai, it was like, I was just so relieved to be home to see my people. Were you there on your own? No, I was, no, it, it was a work trip. I, I work for an organization that does like climate justice stuff. So I was sent there just to do some, just to make what we understand as protest art. That was my whole my whole job there was making art. That's cool. Definitely. Now, I mean, we're we're almost out of time. I wish I would have known to ask more about that. It sounds sounds cool, except for the extreme difference in weather and the like seeming loneliness and feeling more accepted here but it's good you're back feeling good again in the midst of this freezing cold weather and all the sweeps and other things that are not as positive 
But uh, on that note, I'm sure you have other stuff to to accomplish with this day. So I think I've I've taken up enough of your time. Unless you have anything else pertinent you want to talk about, I think I can uh, let you get back to your Saturday. Alrighty, sounds good to me. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. That was that was fun. Or actually, I always say fun to all you guys, and then I feel bad. Fun might not be the way to describe and talk about most of that stuff, but it was informative. Fun is. <laughs> I really I appreciate you answering the questions, and each time I I get to like prab one of you guys for all this info, I learn a lot. I uh, got to grab some stickers at some point. Hopefully, maybe some other people listening will shoot you a message, try to figure out where to get those, because I've been seeing more of them. I, I like it. I would like to, to see them everywhere, and hopefully they stop pulling them off that, that pole at Tim Hortons. Yeah. Do you know, is, it, is there one left, or did, like who won that battle? You or them? I don't know. I don't know what ended up happening with that one. I think I just stopped. I mean, I haven't been there in months, but I just there. I, I think a couple people have told me that they've done these sticker battles with. So I'm giving people like stacks of stickers because I know what they're going through. I know these battles they're fighting every day. These challenges they they face putting up these stickers. So I give people handfuls usually. I'll make sure you get some sometime. I'm sure we'll, we'll connect. Yeah, awesome. Thank you very much for for that and this talk. Enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, yeah, hopefully hopefully I see you in real life soon. Alrighty. Take care, Rusty. Thanks. Bye.